0: Welcome to the Bridge Church Podcast. Our purpose statement at Bridge Church is to reach people where they are and help them grow. We hope today's message inspires you towards growth, and we pray it's life-changing, and we hope to see you soon. It's a
1: real honor to not only be here, but to be with you guys at the top of the year. Seems like just a year ago, we were trying to figure out our resolutions, our goals, not knowing how the year would turn out. And so, man, I just want to pray for us uh, as we jump into this time of Psalm 23. God, thank you so much for your kindness toward us. Thank you for uh, just being with us. This was quite a difficult year. I'm sure a lot of us learned a lot about ourselves, about our community, and hopefully about you. Holy Spirit, would you guide me uh, and help me to be simply good at getting out of the way that people would experience your presence. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So 2020 was not what we expected. It's not what our resolutions accounted for, we didn't include being quarantined for most of the year, being isolated from our relationships, seeing the the kind of grief and the loss and mourning that we all did collectively as a city, as a human race. But if there's anything that I think 2020 taught us, not only about our human narrative, but About ourselves is our limitations. How limited we are to make things work the way that we want them to work. But hopefully, not only if we paid close attention, close enough attention, but if God in His grace was gracious enough to allow us to see that this year also taught us about the unlimited nature of God's grace. So today I want to simply read a passage that I've been desperately holding on to throughout this year, Psalm 23. I'll read the whole Psalm for us, but I'll only focus on verse three because I think there's something unique and special that God wants to deposit in us in that verse. It reads, The Lord is my shepherd. I have what I need. He lets me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He renews my life. He leads me along the right paths for his own names, his name's sake. Even when I go through the darkest valley, I fear no danger for you are with me. Your, wor- your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Only goodness and faithful love will chase after me. Didn't feel that way in 2020. All the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord as long as I live. If anything we learned in 2020, it was our own limitedness. That we can't make things work the way that we want them to work. And if there's anything that we could take into this new year's, perhaps what God wants for us to learn about Him. That God is a safe place for us to rest in. You know, one of the concerns that I had for myself, and perhaps for many of us, is that going into 2021, we were ready for things to go back to normal. That in 2021, we were all ready to get our wheels working, to get our dreams running, to get our goals accomplished. And perhaps go back right to the place that God was using this year to get us out of. What is God perhaps trying to teach us about himself and the way that we ought to live with him? That slowing down and paying careful attention to his presence is perhaps most important. You see, to our very independent, make-your-own-decision kind of culture, verse 2 is a little unsettling. Where it says, he lets me lie down in green pastures. And perhaps you almost think to yourself, no one lets me lie down. Right? In our very independent, think-for-yourself, make-your-own-decision kind of culture, no one lets me do anything. I am entitled to do exactly what I want, when I want in this free country. But when I sat with this a bit more, church, I tried to understand its tone. He lets me lie down in green pastures. He leads me besides quiet waters. I tried to understand the tone, and I began to see that this is less like permission that God is granting us and more like an invitation that he's giving us. You see, this is a radical invitation in verse 2 especially to those in our culture, our New York City hurry-up culture. This is an invitation to a culture where stopping, laying down, and resting is tragically absent. And this invitation by God can be really terrifying. Stopping, slowing down is a very terrifying invitation because laying down, stopping, and resting can only mean a few things. For one, it can mean that you are satisfied with your work, that you're actually content with what you were doing, and you can stop. But it's also terrifying, perhaps even more, because then you have to finally understand yourself beyond what you do. If you stop, perhaps for the first time, you have to understand yourself not by what you do, not by what you produce. But you're probably thinking to yourself, well, Pastor Rich, why would, I be sad? why would I be terrified to feel satisfied? Isn't that the goal? Isn't that what we want, to feel a sense of satisfaction and contentment? Why would I be terrified of that? Well, I'll tell you, church. We're terrified of being this kind of content because we still don't think that we're more than what we produce. We're terrified of stopping and being content because I'm not quite convinced that we are convinced that we are more than what we produce. You see, church, if a sheep lies down, it is only for two reasons. One, the sheep is satisfied, satisfied of grazing the field. Or two, the sheep is safe. It feels safe in the company of the other sheep and the shepherd, of course. Now, I want us to look at these two reasons for the rest of our time together, because I think there might be an invitation that God is offering to us in this year moving forward, coming out of the year that we, ha- that we are coming out of. You know, it's interesting to me when I read this and the way that I think I've culturally understood this as a city kid. As a city kid coming to understand biblical texts and what God is trying to tell us, my idea of the scriptures was often, in my case, shaped by white evangelicalism, the way that I understood certain passages. And so it's interesting that when I read this part of the psalm, I tend to think about abundant and lush pastures. But historically, that's just not true. It only takes a simple survey of the land of Israel to know that Israel is an arid land. <laughs> it doesn't rain much in Israel and green pastures are not lush. They're patchy. And if it wasn't for the shepherd, the sheep wouldn't gra- would graze over one specific area forever. The sheep needed to tell the sheep. They needed to guide the sheep when they needed to go to the next one. Think about Israel and their 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, the wilderness being not only very symbolic, but very actually another arid place with a little resources to survive. In a place that doesn't offer much, God was able to provide and sustain a whole nation for 40 years. I don't want you to graze over that, pun intended, right? I want you to graze over that. God was able to provide and sustain an entire nation of millions of people for 40 years in a place that doesn't offer much, giving them just what they needed every single day for every single year of those four decades. But having what you need for the day isn't the way that we operate. Having what you need just for the day is not the way that we operate, is it? We're constantly being pulled to think about what's next, the next meal, the next opportunity, the next job, and because of that, we have trouble receiving from God only the day's portion. I want you to understand that the culture that we're part of, right, in a kind of urban center, in a city that never sleeps probably because it's never satisfied, (laughs) right, To live in that culture fosters this sense that we don't like the day's portion because I'm too busy thinking about what's next. See, we hope that God would instead give us what we need for the month (laughs) or for the week. Why? Because that feels safer. To receive from God, not the day's portion, but the month's portion feels safer. It makes us more secure about our situation. But church, I do think that we lose something deeply important if God were to do that. If God were to give us the month's portion, even the week's portion, rather than today's portion, I think we do lose something deeply important. I have two kids, my son, Josiah, who's 12, and my daughter, Hayden, who's eight, um... We end the night, almost every night, not every night, but almost every night, just with kind of some freestyle stories, just saying stories with one another and see where it goes. Kind of like Michael Scott. You start a sentence, you don't know where it's going. But I shared with my kids one time um, the story of one of our good friends, a family friend, Domingo. He's homeless and unemployed. And every day, Domingo went to the Love Kitchen, which was a local food pantry in our neighborhood. And every day he gets online in the afternoon and he receives a hot meal for the day. And he does this every single day. And every time he did it, he would get online. And every day that he sees others on that line, he's reminded of his daily needs. Every day he engages with the volunteers who serve him. And church, I am sure that there are days where he's just not up for it. Not because he didn't want to eat or even need to eat, but because he didn't want to bear the burden of living with that kind of need, And I'm sure that there were days where he may have wanted to leave with more than just the day's portion, more than just one meal, maybe meals for a few days so that he wouldn't have to come back, so that he wouldn't have to make that line, so that he wouldn't have to bear the burden of that need. But the love kitchen only gave him one meal, one meal on one day. But guess what coming back, and this I shared with my kids, guess what coming back Offered Domingo. Having to come back daily gave him the opportunity to develop relationships with those who were serving him. He learned their names, he learned their stories, and even their purpose. He learned what brings them joy and why they were even doing this to begin with. What I ended up telling my kids is that God gives us daily bread not as a cruel joke, but as a loving invitation. God gives us daily bread, not as a cruel joke, but as a loving invitation. You see, God feeds us with bread, but he satisfies us with his company. God feeds us with bread, but he satisfies us with his company. You see, if anything, I heard from, from, from reading this passage and understanding the tone of it is that we cannot survive the wilderness on borrowed faith. You see, one of the things that I've learned as I've led our church, as I've walked with God myself, and as I've loved and served my family, I've realized that the kind of spaces we have to learn to create is the space where people can discover God for themselves, where people are free to ask questions, a safe place where people can be their mess, (laughs) and discover God's goodness in the midst of their mess. Because when we do that, we foster and encourage a space where people can develop their own faith with God so that when the wilderness comes, they're not living off of someone else's spirituality. You see, we don't persevere in a difficult season on monthly bread, but on daily bread. Not because of the bread, but because of the company of the one who's bringing us the bread. See, and when you sit down to eat this meal God prepares for you, you can taste for yourself the generosity and kindness. You savor the compassion of God in a different way. Every bite is filled with God's goodness and intention. You smell the seasoning of God's mercy differently. You see, this is the invitation we hear when David says, he lets me lie down in green pastures. This is the same invitation echoed by Jesus, the good shepherd in Matthew 15, when he says, I have had compassion on the crowd because they've already stayed with me three days and and have nothing to eat. I don't want to send them away hungry, otherwise they might collapse on the way. What is Jesus saying with this? Jesus sees that the journey is impossible without his compassion and without his provision. How can I send them on their way? They're hungry. Let me feed them. Let me make company with them. See, this is the invitation that Jesus offers when he feeds the crowds of thousands, seven pieces of bread and a few fishes and still had leftovers. Church, it wasn't the bread that satisfied them. They ate good. But it wasn't the bread that satisfied them. It was the one who blessed it. It wasn't what was done that matters. It was who did it. Church, I believe going into 2021... God has a deep desire to satisfy his church like no one else can. The question is, will we allow him to? But not only do the sheep have to feel uh, satisfied in order to lay down, but they have to feel safe. Did you know that sheep had rectangular pupils? I didn't. I think we've got a picture here. You'll see this in a second. Sheep have rectangular pupils. Sheep have nearly perfect peripheral vision, 320 degrees in fact. In other words, standing in one position, sheep could see all around them. That's right. That's crazy. They can see behind them without having to turn their heads. But what they have in periphery, they lack in depth. What they have in periphery, they lack in depth. In other words, what you can see around you, you can't see right in front of you. Let me make this real plain. Sheep could see anything around them, but they have trouble making out what's right in front of them. They could see everything around them, but have trouble making out what's in front of them. Not to mention that sheep don't have claws. They don't run fast. They don't have sharp teeth. In fact, they only got one set of teeth in the bottom, not the top. (laughs) Do you know that? I didn't know that. I grew up in the heights. (laughs) They were defenseless in almost every single way. You see, in the wild, sheep are the prey, not the predator. They're constantly being hunted, and very few times do they feel like they can settle down anywhere to rest. Church, I want you to imagine for a second, right in your living rooms or wherever you're watching us from, I want you to, I want you to imagine for a moment that you are she- a sheep. Metaphorically, Jesus calls a sheep. It's how he starts the, ser- the, the, the poem. David starts the poem by calling a sheep. Imagine for a moment that you are a sheep. A sheep. Imagine being able to see all around you but not right in front of you. Imagine having ultra-sensitive hearing that goes 100 yards away. Imagine constantly wondering what animals are around hunting you and realizing that you would be practically defenseless when they came. Any little movement, any little sound, any little unfamiliarity would trigger fear, worry, and anxiety. No wonder the shepherds led them to quiet waters. Because any other kind of water, rustling water, would distract them and keep them from the refreshment they went to the water for. The shepherd knows that they need to be near quiet waters, still waters, so that they wouldn't even be distracted by the water, by the water itself. In a 2007 study, uh, Dr. Kendrick, Keith Kendrick says this about sheep. He says that they have the ability to remember faces of up to 50 other sheep and people for up to two years. Kind of remains emblazed in their heads and in their psyche. Sheep have this ability as a way to create a safe place for them. Sheep are not dumb, as we often like to imagine. They're just dependent. But it's so interesting that we associate as dumb or simple-minded to dependents. But sheep are very brilliant social animals, in fact. And this ability to make familiar a certain amount of faces for a certain amount of time is a kind of communal mechanism to create safe uh, spaces for themselves so that whenever challenge came, they knew what kind of person they needed to be around. You see, during uh, this past summer, I went through just some experiences of like deep anxiety and kind of hit an emotional and anxiety wall uh, this past summer, and, and it was quite scary and kind of paralyzing, if I'm honest. And during my most my deepest moments of anxiety, Uh, in these last few months, I noticed that the places that I truly felt at rest were places that didn't make any demands on me. The places where I felt most safe were the places that didn't make any demands on me, where I was able to exist without any obligation, but to be myself. And in those days, myself was a mess. I was just a hot mess in those days. I was broken, I was insecure, I was fearful, I was fragile. And if I pretended to be anything but myself for one moment, I felt like I was going to implode. And you, as you could imagine, being a pastor or being a public leader, uh, you're kind of always forced to kind of put a face on, or at least it feels that way. But I felt in those moments that if I was anything but myself, I was going to implode. And as tired as I, as I was during those days, mentally and emotionally and physically, the only places I realized I could truly lie down were the places that made me feel safe. The places that made me feel like you could be you. You could be broken. You could be fragile. You could be afraid. You could be insecure. The places that didn't make me feel like I needed to pretend and ignore what I was experiencing. The places that welcomed me as I was and where love, hear me, this is very important. The places that felt most safe to me were the places where I felt welcomed as I was and where love and intimacy weren't in jeopardy because of me. We all want it. Connection love, intimacy, but you know that there are certain aspects of yourself that if they were more outward-faced or more public, that love and intimacy and connection would be jeopardized because it would discomfort people too much. A friend uh, shared with a group that I was part of a few weeks ago, about pastors and leaders. It was so interesting. He says that, uh, pastors and leaders often walk into a room calculating who needs me to be what for them so that I can be that thing that they need me to be. Because then I can secure connection with that person. If I can be the thing that you need me to be, then I can secure connection with you. And who doesn't want connection? He said, we spend our days wearing masks just so that we can make connections, just so that we can ensure intimacy. And I thought to myself, dang, that is profoundly simple and profoundly true. And not just of pastors. You see, we will wear masks all day long if it means that we can secure connection in return. We will go as far as never being ourselves, only considering what others want from us just so that we would satisfy them, yet we never truly show ourselves to anyone. You know, it's interesting. Here's the, here's the thing. We don't get intimacy anyway. Anyway when we make connections with a mask on. Because you spent the whole day wearing a mask, any connection that people experience with you isn't truly with you. But here's the greater tragedy, y'all. The greater tragedy is that we do it so much that we live this way with God. Never taking God up on his offer to love us. I had this conversation with my 12-year-old son, and I thought it was just so simple, so profound, so, so needed. <clears throat> God desires to love us. He desires to be connected with us. But unless we are willing to show all of ourselves, how can God love all of us? You see, God wants to love you, not your mask. But to take off your mask is risky. You're not sure if it's safe to take it off. And church, could I just be honest with you? One of the things that I've learned in my marriage and in relationship and in leading people, it's this love is risky. Love is risky. Love is risky. I know you want, I know you want to probably throw 1 Corinthians 13 at me. Love is patient, love is kind. Love is risky. <laughs> love is risky and love is painful. Let me tell you why it's risky. Let me tell you why it's painful. Love is risky because you just don't know that if you finally make yourself vulnerable to the person that is in front of you, you don't know if your, if your decision to show all of yourself will either find that person or lose that person. See, loving you might be a burden too heavy for them to bear. It might scare them away. That's the risk. Love is painful because to to experience love at its deepest capacity requires your full vulnerability. That means those parts of yourself that you've worked so hard to conceal, you must now reveal. You say you want all of you to be loved. Well you have first have have to have all of you be seen. Love is painful. Cuz you finally have to show people who you are. And they may choose and love is risky because they may choose not to move forward. I wonder what it felt. I wonder if it felt risky for the woman at the well when Jesus was talking to her about a different kind of water that she can drink. See, God desires to love us. And if we're going to have a deeper experience of God, then we are going to have to allow ourselves to be touched by his love because God can only be known through devotion, not knowledge. But bear in mind, if we are going to allow ourselves to be loved by God, then we are going to have to allow God and those that he sends to us into the parts of us that we kept uh, uh, hid. The parts of us that we've kept locked away. Because the safest place for our souls is love. Though love is the riskiest thing, and perhaps the most painful thing, it is also the safest place for us to find rest. I wonder if this is perhaps why John 4, 1 John 4, 18, is written to the church. There is no fear in love. Instead, perfect love drives out fear because fear involves punishment. So the one who fears is not complete in love. Church, I want to be clear. This passage is not assuming that we'll never feel fear. Neither is it saying that we have failed if we do feel fear. Rather, it's inviting us to respond to our fears by embracing perfect love, which rules out the possibility of being punished just because you think that there are things about you that are unlovable. Hear me. What this passage is inviting us to is to realize that love will remain From God, love will remain and it won't be scared away simply because you think that there are things about you that are unlovable. God, in a sense, just wants to waste time with you. Let me explain what I mean by this. You ever had those good friends you just spent time with? They come over to the crib if they tested negative. And um, they come over to the crib and you just kick back and you just feel safe with them. Let your hair down, show your cards, whatever, whatever other metaphoric phrase for just feeling safe, right? And you realize you oftentimes in those spaces and with those relationships, you don't really have like a set agenda for the day or for the time you're just kind of kicking it you don't remember half the things you talked about you kind of just wasted time with them and I don't mean that in a negative way I just mean time just goes by because you feel safe with this person this person makes you feel comfortable maybe that comes in the form of your spouse or significant other or some friends or a group of friends See, one of the things that I think God wants most from us coming into this year is that we would, in a sense, just waste time with him. Don't try to put an agenda to our time with God, but simply be aware of his presence with us and spend it with him. I could only imagine laying down in green pastures what it feels like. Feeling safe, feeling satisfied with God's presence. In fact, here's how I want to end our time together, church. I want you to close your eyes. For those of you that are watching, I want you to close your eyes. And closing your eyes is simply just to remove distraction. If you find a way to remove any distractions with your eyes open, that's totally fine too. But the idea here is for the next few moments, I want you to do your best to remove, to remove uh, any distractions. And perhaps you're at home and maybe that's difficult with little kids. That's okay. Please, don't judge yourself for having a harder time with this than others. Talk to yourself nice, as we would say. But do your best to just remove some distraction. One of the things that I do with my kids as we go into times of silence sometimes as I say, just think of a phrase that, that, that symbolizes time with you and God. And whenever you get distracted, gently breathe that word to yourself to bring you back to God. Think of a phrase, think of a word that could potentially bring you back if you feel distracted. But as you sit there with your eyes closed, I want you to imagine laying in an open field. Maybe Fort Greene Park. Maybe Prospect Park. Maybe the BK Bridge Park. Whatever you have in mind is a restful place. I want you to imagine just laying in that open field. And I want you to imagine yourself laying there totally satisfied content not hungry and although you're sitting there alone you don't feel lonely all your work for the day is done you feel totally safe you're not worried about a work project your next meal your kid's schoolwork You're not fearful of a bill that needs paying, not concerned about a discomfort that you may be feeling in your body. You're just laying there, satisfied and safe. And then all of a sudden you feel a wind blow by you, but not a wind that just leaves, one that kind of just settles right where you are. It's warm, it's comforting, It's the kind of breeze you feel on a warm day. And the world seems to just be still. And this moment seems to be all that matters. It's not a cold wind, it's a warm one, and it's a comforting one. And just as you open your eyes, you hear Jesus say to you, come away by yourselves to a remote place and rest for a while. For many people have been coming and going and you have not had time to eat. Would you take a hold of this invitation that Jesus has for you today? Let's pray together. God, We've realized coming out of this year how fragile things are in this life. We've realized how much mourning and grief and loss could exhaust us. God, but I thank you that our darkness. Is not your darkness, though we find you in it. <laughs> um, God, I thank you that you are not in- intimidated by our darkness. And as my very wise wife encouraged me, she said, oh yeah, he's, he's in our darkness. He's very familiar with it. But God does his best work in the dark. God is not intimidated by our darkness. In fact, my wife went on to tell me, and Lord, I'm so grateful for her and these words that my darkness is not his darkness. And so God, I pray that as we step foot into this year, that we would not only befriend the light of the world but that we would embrace the darkness where we often see him clearest in God help us to find rest with you help us to be satisfied in you and God as the psalmist says here may you let us lay down in green pastures and may you lead us into quiet waters we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
0: We hope today's message was encouraging for you. We'd also love to hear how God used this message to speak to you. We hear from people all across the country about what God is doing through our podcast, and we'd love to hear from you. You can email us at info at you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Our handle for both of those social media outlets is at BridgeChurchNYC. Our website is BridgeChurchNYC.com. If you're in the New York City area, we have services at 4 p.m. and 6 p.m. on Sundays at 98 Fifth Avenue in Brooklyn, New York, right next to the Barclay Center. We are praying for you and we hope to see you soon.